0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of Inside the Lens. I'm your host, Don Kamareczka and in this episode, I sit down with Frederick Van Johnson of TWIP fame, and we talk about all things photography, from the inception of digital photography and how technology has evolved, and Frederick's personal experiences with the very first digital cameras, and we talk about where photography is going in technology and how the limits are continually being pushed, and of course, how photographers can take advantage of that by better understanding light. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy. My name is Don Kamarechka, and this is episode zero 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 of uh, of Inside the Lens, a new podcast that I'm launching on the This Week in Photo Network. And I'm just totally thrilled to be sitting down here with uh, Frederick Van Johnson, uh, the, the man behind the machine of, of Twip. And uh, you know, we've we've gone way back, Frederick, and it's so great to you've. Uh, like prodded me over about a year and a half now <laughs> to launch this podcast and I've just I'm so excited to be here thank you for not giving up on me and welcome to the first
1: episode hey man thank you thanks for having me on the first episode and you say that I'm the man behind the machine I like to think of it as I'm the ghost in the machine <laughs> <So> <laughs> you, you guys you guys are the the machine and I'm just kind of there trying to make things uh move forward fluidly so I'm excited for the show man well, you, you do that, but you are, yeah,
0: you are the, the, the force behind it all. It's not just the ghost. I mean, uh, we wouldn't all be in this position without you, and I wouldn't be starting this podcast without you. So I've got you to thank, awesome. uh, and it's very fitting to have you on here. But um, I, I guess we should talk about the sort of the concept of this show, about what we're trying to achieve with it, and to kind of fit into a niche that uh, I, I think, personally, very few photography podcasts ever get into. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, what, what does that entail? I mean, there's a few different directions that I think we're going to go with this. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, I I'll tell you what what I think. So, my, and I've said this on This Week in Photo a lot before, I'm I'm a big science geek. I love this stuff. I love, uh, I'm a lifelong learner, you know, to, to coin a phrase. And the science of photography, when I first started getting into photography, the whole science of it is what initially drew me into this art of image making, you know, this art art of photography and, you know, the silver halide processes and the the chemicals and the smells and, you know, the artisanship of dodging and burning and the enlargers and lenses and all this stuff was all like magic little tools that you get to use to make something that people look at and say, wow, you made that, you know. So, it still kind of, it still has that magic in a lot of more ways with computers and you know, mirrorless cameras and all this stuff, but still, it's that that fundamental recording of the photon thing that gets me excited. And it's understanding light
0: too. Mm-hmm. It's not just recording it, but it's understanding exactly how the, uh, the the machines that we're using to create art how they're actually working. Yeah. And moreover, how our brains are interpreting all of that information that's coming in because these brains uh, that, that we have, you know, that they're instinctual, they're that uh, they're wired on a level that is in. It fundamentally different from the way a camera captures things yeah and to, to kind of bridge the gap between those two is going to be a fun discussion that i think will be uh you know throughout this entire podcast as time goes on but looking at how engineers since the inception of photography in the film days and as we went into digital and how things are just evolving uh like even today there's some announcements that we'll talk about a little bit later that are pushing the limits of photography even farther yeah uh and, and I think that to dive under the hood of all of this and not talk about the, the basic specs and, and everything, but to understand what's going into the latest and greatest in camera technology. What psychologically do photographers have to keep in mind when they're taking pictures? And at the end of it, what is what the heck is light doing inside of a lens? And yeah. and I really want to uh, dispel some myths and, and dive into some areas that, uh, you know, only the scientists would really be covering, but we'll be trying to bring it into a more of a, a layman's language so that the average photographer, I think, can uh, can
1: get some great benefit. Totally, out of that. totally. Yeah. And I want, you know, I'm happy to have you, well, hopefully you'll be diving into like the the photonic level of photography. Like talk about the photon, the speed of light, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and even, you know, I was watching this documentary the other day and they were, they were it was on the universe or, or um, maybe it's on dark matter or something, but they were talking about the speed of light and how, Though there's two things that there's a lot of things that we don't know, obviously, about the universe, but there are two things that still have scientists kind of perplexed. And that is light you know, and why it maintains a constant speed no matter what. Right. So if, in other words, if you fire a bullet off of a speeding train, it's the speed of the bullet plus the speeding train speed, which equals the ultimate velocity with light. If you shine light out of the front of a train, it's going to go one hundred and eighty six thousand miles per second. Regardless of the speed of the train, which is weird, and they can't, they don't know why. And then the other piece of the other thing is gravity. You know, still don't understand why gravity works or or yeah. what's what's up with gravity. You know, so light and gravity is just amazing.
0: Well, to be fair, the speed of light does change as it passes through different densities, right?
1: Right. Uh, so, but if, it has an ultimate speed limit that it, it does. It can't go faster than one hundred eighty-six thousand miles per second, no matter what speed it began at so again that speeding train going 100 miles an hour it's not 186,000 miles per second plus 100 miles an hour on top of that it's still 186,000 well so. and to some degree too i mean sound behaves in a similar way
0: that's why yeah. we have sonic booms right because yep. if you're uh, in an, uh, uh, in a fighter jet or something and uh, you're you uh, they don't have horns but imagine if they had a horn like a car had a horn uh, and it won't go any faster than the speed of sound would normally be going. And that's why you get these sonic booms that are created when it passes through that sound barrier where all of that sound is compressed on the nose of this aircraft until it pushes through that.
1: Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, yeah. And so there's tons of fun physics involved in, it? I mean, I know. in you light, and sound, and, light yeah, and sound. Light and sound, they behave very similarly. Only, you know, obviously sound is much slower than light. Uh, but we're in the business of recording light. So that's just understanding. I think it's it's... Really cool for photographers to understand that the, the fundamental, the fundamental unit of light, because that's their job, right, is to record light and, and bounce it around and light things and stretch it and pull it and do all this cool stuff. But when you get down to that photonic level and understand the basic unit of what you're recording, it kind of kind of changes things a little bit. It does, uh, but but it changes things in in an interesting way because
0: you think about the rules of photography. The rules, like okay, well, why do we have the rule of thirds? Why do we have all of these mm-hmm. other rules? Um, and as a beginning photographer, we're meant to take that at face value in order to establish some ground rules. Uh, but as you progress in the photographic arts, and I think I might have mentioned some of this stuff on the the prototype that the the pilot that I had recorded uh, going into this, but. If we have uh, if we have an understanding of why those rules are in place then we know exactly why those rules are meant to be broken it's not mm-hmm. to say that every rule in photography is designed to be broken and sure that's true but to understand exactly why that is I think is paramount to success in creativity yeah uh, because when we get into photography these days the only way that you really stand out is to be creatively unique in a way that hasn't been done before and is captivating to the people that are looking at those images right and you can't do that That unless you know what's behind the rules. Unless you start to get inventive in photography, you're not going to find that niche uh, that evolves into your own successes. And so, again, understanding it on that fundamental level, I think, is is a huge reason that some photographers today, they'll climb very specific ladders uh, in in very niche areas, but they'll get known for it. I mean, I've known for a couple of them myself, like Mm -hmm. snowflakes and water droplets and and that kind of stuff. But uh, who would have thought that I could have built enough of a, of a following on like something as, as finite as a macro photograph of a snowflake. I mean, come on, I'm really, it, but yeah. we're in a, we're in a global village here, a world that will
1: find an audience for
0: just about anything as,
1: as long as you do it better than anybody else. That's the key, right? Doing, doing one thing and doing it better than anyone else. And then back to what you said earlier, the it's I mean, like I, I was saying. It's important to understand the fundamentals of things, and as you branch out and t- and find your voice, like in your case, macro and snowflakes, and you know the myriad of other things that you do. It's also important for the beginning photographers to know what the rules are in order to break them. Right. So. And it's and it's that sort of gray area period of understanding what the rules are so that you can break them. That gets a little tricky because, you know, you're like, OK, on the one hand, Don is saying that I should be innovative and, and shake things up and not be like anyone else. So I need to break the rules. But on the other hand, I'm just learning. So I need to learn the rules. So how do you you know, how do you uh, reconcile those two things?
0: I I think every photographer starts with a very wide net, you know, there's so many things that interest photographers. Um, and you know, so you might be shooting landscapes and portraiture and pictures of your family and pets and maybe some macro pictures in your garden, you know, anything from flowers and insects. And maybe you might dabble in photographing the night sky and heck even underwater stuff and whatever your interests kind of guide you towards, you're going to play with everything. And, and then slowly you find the areas that you get the best feedback on, uh, the most positive positive response. And you you gravitate towards those. And it almost runs parallel to your interests in life. You know, Mm -hmm. the things that you're most passionate about in life tend to be the things that you're best at in photography. So... It's kind, of you know, like, I,
1: it's kind of like relationships, right, Don? So it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. when you're in high school, you're dating in college, you date different people so that you can figure out which ones you like and which ones you don't like. And then you settle on one and that becomes your spouse, right? So, exactly, exactly. You
0: know. uh, and, and so, you know, you think that, okay, if you're really passionate about model cars or model trains or something like that, your photography might gravitate towards that. And it might mean something to the community of enthusiasts within that area. And then you might develop a following of people that are already interested in that and with the entire world at your disposal to build an audience on uh, it's not just you know that that you know the, the local enthusiast club in your hometown that's going to see this it's the world over yeah. and so it does not matter how niche that is and you know I this brings up another conversation about why you should pursue passionate you know projects that have no monetary gain in photography even if you are a professional because you'll evolve uh, uh, your, your work into new areas and develop a new audience that way too yeah. Let, let's get back to the fundamentals of photography Frederick and I'm okay. so glad that you're on the show here because um, you've you've had some hands-on experience with the inception of digital photography. Which when I when I think about gear and I think about uh, the, the latest and greatest uh, technology, and I'm I've got the, the the flagship Canon camera, and there's rumors that another one's going to be out, and I'm going to be all over it because it's more sparkly than the one that I have now. <laughs> um, But when I look back and I'm thinking, okay, well, digital photography, for one, hasn't been around for that long. The the whole grand scheme of things in photography, it really started to um, evolve at a rapid pace, uh, at an exponential pace since the inception of that. But you were right there uh, and you got hands on experience with some time. I think you were in the military at the time. So I was because I've got you on here. Let's start right at the inception of digital photography. And I want you to regale us with some of those war stories.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a, that was an exciting time. And I'll tell you, we didn't know that we were, you know, at the forefront of this technology. We just thought, okay, this is the new camera. Who knows if we're going to, you know, who knows if it's going to stick around or whatever. We'll use this along with our real cameras, our D4s at the time. Right. (laughs) So, um, So to rewind, so I'm not even going to go with the year. I forgot what the year was. But a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away um, or an Air Force base far, far away, um, my unit received the first digital cameras that were put into service in the military. And these were the, these were a a Nikon Kodak hybrid camera called the Nikon DCS series cameras. So describe what this hybrid is, right? Because this is, uh, you don't really hear about
0: Nikon partnering with Kodak at all. I mean, that's, (laughs) it's a forgotten page of history.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Back then they were, they were in bed together and basically Kodak made, I think the sensor and the hard drive piece of of the camera. Camera, which was kind of a... Think of a, a modern DSLR with a long chin. <laughs> you know, Basically, the body of the camera extended down enough to enclose a spinning hard drive in a there. Sp- a physical spinning hard a drive. A you know, physical like I, spinning hard drive. I, I just bought some
0: here. I mean, th- these are six terabyte hard drives that we can get easily now. Yeah. H- how much storage would you have on one of those hard drives?
1: Oh, geez. One of those cameras, I think we ran out of space. It, they may have been like maybe three megabytes or something. I mean, but they, they ran out of space like that, you know, and the battery life was horrendous. Um, And they were heavy, but the top of it was a Nikon N8008 or N801, depending on where it came from, you know, Japan versus the U.S. So the N8008 in the U.S., basically a DSLR with a hard drive grafted onto the bottom, and boom, you had the first one megapixel digital camera, right? (laughs) So, so, you know, horror stories are, you know, we got these things in and we're like, oh man, these are great. you know, you can imagine the boxes. We open them up. Military had spent $15,000 on each one of them. So, one megapixel camera for $15,000. And we had 10 of them. So, so, so we're like opening up our babies and only the, you know, the, the, the seasoned photographers got the new digital cameras, you know? So we get these digital cameras, testing them out, shooting and looking at the images and they looked okay as long as you didn't zoom in. Right. It, it 320 by 240 they were beautiful but <laughs> as soon as you zoom in you start okay we need to figure out how to use photoshop one at the time to scale these images well, so when, that when you say
0: zoom in though frederick did, did the camera have an lcd screen on the back or were these downloaded to the computer at that point
1: no, these, uh, the, there was no LCD on the, on the back of the camera that was, you had to download them. You, so basically you, it was like regular photography. So it was just film photography, but you're recording to a hard drive, essentially no preview, no, none of that. Right. Uh, so Yeah. So when I say zoom in, yeah, we had to figure out how to interpolate these images up in Photoshop properly so as to maintain some semblance of detail in the image. But you could see where these were, where it was going. Right. Because I think at the time, the other consumer digital cameras out floating around, I may be overlapping timelines here, but whereas the uh, remember the code, the um, the Apple quick take camera. So that, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apple. It looked like a binocular, like a set of binoculars. It was a gray thing with the with the rainbow Apple logo on there. And what were the one that S- cool. Sony
0: came out with? One that used floppy disks as well. That was shortly, the Sony thereafter. Mavica,
1: the yes. Mavica. Yeah, I love that camera. I still love that camera. I I've got I one in one. my
0: closet, actually. Uh, I love
1: I, that that camera was. I I just love the organizational features of it. Just being able to walk into like some computer big box retailer and buy a box of floppy disks and say, "Yeah, that's film." That's just film. I'm just going to use that as film. Uh, But yeah, so horror stories were we, I I guess I'll I'll tell you one. When we first started using these cameras, like I was saying, the big problem was battery life. The, The batteries weren't removable, so you had to charge it you know, you, once and, you... And a spinning hard disk. I mean, you've got uh, like magnetic platters that require a motor to <laughs> yeah. juice them up, right? Exactly. And it's got to be spinning. So, we got maybe, geez, I don't know, maybe 30, 50 shots out of one, which was still at 50 shots. We're thinking, wow, that's almost two rolls of film. We're styling, you know, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is great. So, you know, so the battery life issue. So, we looked at that and I'll tell you, one of the... I tried to solve it myself because we had... We had the still photographic unit um, on base. And this is at Vandenberg Air Force Base. So we had the still photographic unit. And then we had videographers there as well. Videographers, of course, had their big giant video cameras at the time. And they all wore these like Batman style utility belts with batteries in them. You know, that's how they... Because they had to stay powered for long periods of time. So they had some old ones laying around that they didn't really need anymore. So I'm like, okay, what if (laughs) we took your peanut butter and mix it with our chocolate, we might actually have, you know, we might be able to go in the field and deploy with
0: these things. Yeah, if the voltages are the same, and, and you've got, you know, something yep. that you could partner those two together.
1: And uh, we did. We did. I, we, we had some of the guys, the like the uh, the electrical folks there, wire up the connector for us and make sure we weren't burning up this $15,000 worth, <laughs> worth of camera, sensitive optical equipment that we had. But they hooked it up, and it worked. And it kept the camera charged. But the negative piece of it, you know, the law of global of thermodynamics, we, we had the weight now <laughs> so we had this camera, this sub one megapixel camera that would now take photos until it, you know, filled up the hard drive, but we had this big battery built on. So that was kind of the catch 22. There's some other batteries that showed up, you know, later that we were able to swap into. Like, I think we modified some of the, uh, the Sunpack flashes. You remember Sunpack had those battery packs that you could plug into their Thor hammer flashes. Oh, so yeah. They had, yeah. They had the battery packs that you could plug into those so that you could keep them charged and keep going for wedding photographers or whatever. So we took some of those and modified them to power the cameras. <laughs> so, so we had no idea we were we were pioneers. We were just trying to make this stuff work so we could play.
0: The, with this thing it, was you know? a Frankenstein construction to begin with and, it was. and
1: <laughs> it was like the it was like Iron Man's first suit.
0: <laughs> yeah. But okay, so you you're right at the, the pioneering phase. How long did that last? How long were these
1: cameras in service for? Oh, geez. We had those cameras in service. I want to say a couple of years at least because we had because it was an evolution. So we had the cameras. Um, and then once we realized, OK, we can actually capture images in the field and they're digital. We don't have to process or anything. We got the uh, we took delivery of our satellite uplinks, which were these giant they look like uh like clothing trunks that you take to college, right? But inside were all these electronics and a pop-up gigantic parabolic dish that would unfold. And we had training on how to find the satellites and all this. And boom, once you did all this stuff, which took about 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes, depending on cloud cover, you find the satellite, boom, and now you're connected to the internet, right? So you can... Back then, it wasn't really the internet. It It was an FTP server that we were connected to that was accessible from the Pentagon, et cetera. So we could shoot and put files in there and then send off a message saying, Hey, there's files in there. Boom. They could instantly see shots that we were creating on the ground somewhere else, which was kind of groundbreaking. There was no, okay, we need to figure out how to get our film back and get it processed and then mailed over there or However, or scanned and sent, it was boom. You know, we're shooting and sharing directly from the field. I think photography at that stage
0: really revolutionized military intelligence um, yeah. when the digital world came in. And it just as you said, at the, the turnaround time to get that uh, those images, and I'm not even sure what you were photographing. If you can talk about that, I'm sure a lot of it was documentary work. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, where, where you're photographing a scenario
1: or something for whatever uh, improvement intelligence that well, kind I mean, of I'll thing. Tell you that what I can talk about is our exercises. So we did the We an exercise is when you're actually, when you're basically practicing, but it's a full-on deployment. So at Vandenberg, we used to do exercises all the time where we would essentially pretend like we're going to war or something, but we would only be going three miles down the road, you know? (laughs) So, but it would be, we'd be cut off from civilization. Same thing. Only we're out in the middle of nowhere in California deploying, and that would be our exercise. So you'd be evaluated on your performance based on how you did on this exercise. So everything from, did you bring everything you needed to bring? Was every, did you have all the batteries where you charge, you have all your film, were you able to set up and do an uplink within this window of time? All these things were evaluated as if you were in the field. Of course, in the field there, you know, there's no margin for error. So here it was margin for error and you got evaluated on how well you did in certain things. So yeah, we we would do that all the time. And and as far as what we shot during a deployment, once we got set up, the photographic unit or the photographers, our assignment generally immediately was to document the the building up of the installation, you know, what all the other teams were doing. So we were. We were the still photographic journalists, you know, documenting the guys setting up their tents and building this and cleaning that and bringing these these vehicles in and aircraft and all that stuff. So we'd get in, set up essentially the lab and then deploy to document the construction of our little mobile city. That is so cool. That, that must yeah. have been fun. Uh, it was. It was fun. It was really fun. I mean, a lot of it was a pain in the butt, you know, because come on, you know, you're like, oh man, I got to go out here in the middle of nowhere. I could see there's a 7 Eleven over there, but I'm not allowed to go to it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I could really use a hot dog right now, but I got to eat this MRE, you know. So, you know, but it was fun. In retrospect, I wouldn't, in retrospect, I would not trade it for anything else, you know, they'll just the, understanding like over time you start seeing the patterns of like okay i see where this is going oh the cameras are getting better and better and smaller and smaller and look adobe's innovating on photoshop and it's getting better and better and better and look where know. we are now i mean mm-hmm. it's it's an entirely different world uh, yeah.
0: you know i i could imagine like people that uh that, that were pioneers in photography everybody knows the name ansel adams and and you mm-hmm. mentioned photoshop and I remember hearing that in the early 80s, he was playing around with some of the very, very first photo editors yeah. uh, and was embracing that latest bit of technology. And he was always embracing that. And photographers today, I think, continue to to live in that same spirit. But if somebody like him were alive today, they'd say, you know, we have no limitations anymore. There, there's no limits in photography. If you take a bad yeah. picture, it's your own damn fault. That's right. Uh, That's it's, right. You know, You can't walk into a camera store today and buy a bad camera. Uh, You'd have to try really hard to. Uh, And even if you did, it would be better than the best cameras that were were around five, six years prior.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, I would have, back in those days, I would have killed for an iPhone. (laughs) 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 We all all would. I mean, all the gear that we had to take just to get sub one megapixel shots that were okay... If we could have had just a group of iPhones with us, that would have reduced our load by tonnage, I'm sure. Um, But it's funny you mentioned Ansel Adams. On Twip Talks, I interviewed uh, Michael Adams, the son of Ansel Adams a while back. And I asked him that very question. Folks can, if they go to thisweekinphoto.com and search for Michael Adams, they'll find the interview. Um, But I asked him specifically... What he thinks his dad would think of technology today and would he embrace it or would he not embrace it? And he said without hesitation, he would have been all over it. You know, the fact that he was out there waiting for days on end on the top of their camper trying to get the shots at Yosemite and all that was a means to an end. He wasn't doing that for the exercise of doing that. He was doing it because that's how he, the only way he was able to get the shots that he wanted if there was some technology back then to allow him to do that easier, according to Michael Adams, he would have used it. So, yeah, I, it's it's a new day. It's a new and, day.
0: And, and every day, I mean, we, we talk that this stuff is growing exponentially since that inception of digital photography. And, and Kodak originally was making a lot of sensors. And, and that was a big part of their business uh, at the turn of the film era. They actually had most of the patents involved in that. Yeah. And uh, and it's funny to see now that Kodak is, is pretty much no more.
1: Um, it's crazy. It's crazy how things change. But it's it lets you know how the universe takes no prisoners and does not care about your history or nostalgia or anything like that if you don't evolve you will fade away <laughs> right? and, yeah, and
0: I've talked to some photographers even that they they were struggling and you know their attitude was that they kind of learned everything that they needed to to, to be successful yeah, and that's no. the wrong attitude to have mm-hmm. because as soon as you say that to yourself it means you've given up it, yeah. it means that you are in a mindset where everybody else is just going to run past you uh, in this ever changing world
1: Yeah, You got to be a lifelong learner in this age. There's no, okay, I I got the craft now, I'm going to go forth and create for the rest of my life. I think those days are gone. The days that are here now are, I understand the fundamentals of this craft and I'm starting to hone my particular genre or look that I want to go for. But my the other half of my brain is still open and receptive to all these cool tools that keep coming out. And I'm going to try to incorporate those into my work to further my style and try new things.
0: And and technology is only helping that now, too, because yeah. I remember a couple of weeks ago, there was an annou- announcement from MIT where they've had a brand new camera technology, which I, I honestly I don't know why this hadn't been created before. And I had questioned this uh, uh, many years earlier where. You know, when a camera sensor records information, um, it has sort of a base value of zero. And as photons get collected in each little photo site, the, the, uh, the pixel pickups on the sensor, um, it'll keep going up and up and up until it hits its peak value. And then that's when, you know, th- th- that's as much as it can record. And mm-hmm. then that's just an overexposed image. Yeah. Well, w- why couldn't you then have when it hits that value, it just flips a counter up? To one, resets that back down to zero and starts filling it back up again so that you know how many times it's filled up and the last time what its value is. And now you have basically unlimited dynamic range or something that can more closely mimic human vision. And prototype cameras are now being created to do that. Um, Canon just announced today um, that they have a, a development process moving forward for a 120 megapixel digital SLR. And yesterday, as we're recording this, I don't know when it'll actually air, but In the recent past, they announced they have a prototype sensor of 250 megapixels in APS-H size, which is a little bit smaller than full frame. And who knows if that'll actually make it into a consumer product. They might be aiming for a different market for that. But a consumer product with 120 megapixels? I mean, come on. this That's is-
1: crazy. Uh, that is just nuts. That And that makes me happy. I mean, on the one hand, it makes me happy. On the other hand, it makes me sad. <laughs> so, <laughs> on the happy side, I'm like, yes, we're pushing this stuff forward. This is awesome. You know, on the sad side, I'm like, I know the, I'm going to get gear acquisition syndrome and I'm going to want it, you know, but... What am I going to use it for? Do I really need all those pixels? You know, all this stuff. Well,
0: yeah. Megapixels for the sake of megapixels doesn't amount to anything of Mm -hmm. value. Uh, Unless you're doing like artwork reproduction photography and and things like that for which you need more pixels and more is always better. High-end
1: retouching architecture. Yeah. Yeah. But Don, I was going to ask you on that because you mentioned that before we started recording and it got my mind thinking with... Micro four thirds, which is the the cameras that I shoot currently, um, the micro four third format, they've been stuck at around 16 to 20 megapixels for since I've been shooting the camera in many years before. That's kind of been the limit with this technology that Canon is creating to get this. What is 120 megapixels into an APS H size sensor? Do you think that that could be incorporated into Micro Four Thirds to get us maybe up into the 20, 30, 40 megapixel range?
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, now, the issue is Canon doesn't usually, as far as I know, license their cameras to uh, their, their sensors rather to third parties. It's sort of their yeah. own secret sauce in there. So unless Canon were to be producing a Micro Four Thirds camera, I, they, they just announced that their um, EOS M series is coming back to North America. So they might mm-hmm. be putting some muscle behind that. Um, and who knows who has patents for all of this stuff and cross licensing. It's kind of complicated. Um, but we've had uh, like small sensors in point-and-shoot cameras uh, yeah. that have much smaller sensors than micro four-thirds pushing into the 16 and 20 megapixel range as well. However, the problem with that and the problem that you will encounter with a uh, 120 megapixel camera that we're already seeing with the 5DS and 5DSR uh, at 50 megapixel in any camera in that range is the actual photonic pickups, the photosites, I think is the technical term, They're getting so small that you run into problems with diffraction. And uh, diffraction is basically when, because well, light is a wave, and uh, this is where I, you know, the propeller hat uh, session Let goes it. on here. So Spin it, spin it. <laughs> all right, so l- light is a wave, and as, uh, as any wave passes through an opening, it will diffract around the edges. Uh, and there was a science experiment that, uh, that I remember from, uh, from a high school physics class where we had a wave table where you could generate straight waves and it would pass through different objects and you could see how they would interact and bend around different things. Uh, but if you had an opening, and you had a straight wave that passed through an opening, the wave on the other side of that opening would be curved. And this yeah. happens inside of a camera sensor as well, or inside of a, a lens rather. Uh, yeah. Because when when the information, uh, the, the light, the photons, and all the stuff that should be hitting the sensor to create an image passes through the aperture, some of it bends off course. And the smaller the aperture, of course, the, the, the more it will bend off of its uh, intended target, and it will yep. be hitting neighboring pixels. And this, it's like water, trying to squirt water through a hole, right? Exactly. Uh, it, yeah. uh, even when you squirt waddle out of its nozzle, it's not going to go straight like a laser. It's going to spread out. And, yeah. and yeah. so the light that should be hitting the pixel that it's it intended to is now hitting the pixel next to it and the pixel next to that and next to that. And the smaller you make that aperture, the ratio of good light to bad light does not work in your favor because the light will spread out even farther and farther. Uh, And at a certain point, say I'm using a Canon 1DX, it's an 18 megapixel camera, uh, I might start to encounter diffraction limiting uh, where the visible reduction in quality is noticeable at around f... 22 f32, somewhere in that range. Yeah. And if I were to be having a camera that has 36 megapixels or 40 or 50 megapixels, then that point at which diffraction will limit my resolution becomes an earlier point because now the pixels are smaller on the sensor and the light doesn't have to travel as far to introduce this blurriness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so now, I mean, there's no way around this. Um, if I were to be shooting with a 1DS, I would not want to shoot anywhere above f11 because I'm going to be encountering this problem. If I yeah. get a Canon digital SLR using the standard EF lenses and I try to shoot at f22, there's no way I'm going to resolve anything uh, beyond, say, 30, 40 megapixels. It's just mm-hmm. it, the pixels are going to blur together. So then I'd have to be at that scale shooting at, say, f5.6, uh, maybe f4, in order to get the the full potential of that camera. And photographers, I think, have to
1: change their mindset. They have to change the way See they think. That, just that little piece that you said, like, that is what's critical, right? I mean, that is when you start understanding that level, just notching down from Sensor resolution, low light sensitivity, f-stops and shutter speeds and all those basics. When you get down into, OK, what's actually happening with this wave of light on the sensor that I spent, you know, my paycheck on? And how do I get the best out of this other than just saying, hey, I'm going to shoot raw? You know, how do I get the best out of this sensor? Then you start understanding your, your camera becomes a tool and you're the artisan rather than, you know, it's just something that I'm using to snap some pictures with. Yeah, you know, I, think, I think that understanding the level of, of light and mechanics of light as it interacts with the optics and the, the sensors on your camera separates the, I, I don't want to say geeks from the cool people, but it separates <laughs> the, you know, I don't want to say real photographers from the amateurs either, but it, it separates from the people that have an intrinsic, deep knowledge of their gear and photography all the way through from the process of capturing that light wave to delivering the final product to the client. Well, and to delivering the final product to the client is key because there
0: are so many stages to go through. Understanding Mm -hmm. the light as it's hitting through the lens and on the camera sensor and how to take a good exposure or an exposure that has all of the information that you need might look crappy in camera, but at the end of it, it turns out to be something that has a lot of editing potential because you know that at the next stage of the game, that's where the image becomes beautiful. And then through that editing process, you create something that is deliverable to the client. And then do they print it? And then printing is an entirely different art form because yeah. in ca- like human vision, for one, has around 24 stops of dynamic range, you know, from uh, completely adjusted night vision to snow blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and our eyes are, are, are pretty, uh, pretty powerful tools at figuring out exactly how to combine all this stuff together. But a camera, uh, the, yeah. the average digital SLR right now might be around 12 stops. I think some might be pushing 14. But it's not just like oh well the 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 camera is half of what human vision is. No, one stop is a doubling of sensitivity or of that dynamic range. Right, so when you right. add ten stops on that, I mean, this is a huge That's difference. That's crazy. That's like, crazy. How then can a camera capture something that uh, that our eyes saw and have the two actually connect together? And, and the then, other
1: the other challenge, sorry, to the other the other challenge with Trying to approximate human vision with mechanical and, you know, optical processes, um, is that there's this whole thing that we have behind our eyes called our brain that takes that visual information and many times fills in the blank. So it fills in the blank. So a lot of times what you think you saw, you didn't really see it. Your brain is interpolating and making assumptions about what it thinks you probably are looking at in your periphery or the dynamic range that's there and kind of filling in the blanks of what it thinks the dynamic range should be. Exactly, you may not yeah. actually be seeing it. Right? You know,
0: when you're in a room and you look out the window, your eyes will automatically adjust to see what's out the, uh, outside the window in a proper uh, memory kind of way, and then when you look inside, your eyes will automatically adjust to see the inside room in the same way. And so your eyes are adjusting uh, for yeah. that. But then when you try to recall that memory, you'll imagine it like you could see outside and inside exactly the same. <laughs> and it's a completely transparent process where the yeah. camera, of course, you got you to pick and choose. You got to choose one or the other. Uh, and then when you put it onto a computer screen, uh, the average computer screen might be around 10 stops. So you're losing a little bit from the digital uh, output from the camera. And then when you make a print, you might between be between five and seven stops. Yeah. And to have that final print, look like a scene that you saw and remembered within your own eyes
1: that is the art of photography all right Don you might be scaring some people away now because they're like you know what I thought I liked photography now I don't because there's math and science involved in this <laughs> but you know that, that, that's the fun of it for me is to, yeah. to, is
0: to dive into each of these little verticals and I'm sure we'll have entire episodes on color science and on the art of printing and on what the heck dynamic range is from somebody that's designed a camera sensor and totally. uh, and all of these different fun aspects of photography that when you take one of these little things on its own and spell that out into an entire episode um, I think that it will be an Lightning experience for, for most photographers. And, totally. and something that I think will, that, that photographers will take away in a bit more of a timeless fashion than talking about the latest gear, because that's always going to be a rolling target. And no matter mm-hmm. what, I mean, you and me, Frederick, we we both have uh, the gear acquisition syndrome, this lust for the latest new sparkly uh, yep. camera, uh, new bells
1: and whistles. And I'm whistles. happily addicted. I'm a happy addict. You so know what? It's
0: okay. Exactly. <laughs> as long as uh, your, your wallet can support the habit, uh, yep. then, then I think that that's something that most photographers should embrace. Uh, because it it keeps us enthusiastic about the art form. And as long as you're enthusiastic about it, you're going to get out there and you're going to keep taking pictures. And when you do that, you're going to evolve your art form further. But I think that if you take a slightly more timeless approach to it and understand exactly how light is bending around and what's happening inside the lens, as the namesake of this uh, podcast would say, uh, then you become a better photographer for it. Love it. Love it. It's going to be a great show, Don. It is. Thank you so much for being on this episode with me, Frederick. And uh, maybe we'll have you back on because I think that there's a few more stories in the future that uh, that would be a fun thing for you to add in. And uh, I have a ton of
1: stories to share. I'm going to I'm going to turn into one of those grandfathers that is always telling stories like my grandfather (laughs) did. You know, every he had a story for everything. His name was Floyd. He had a a, a story for every little thing. You could point at a flower and he's like, boy, let me tell you about that flower right there. (laughs) So I'm going to turn into Floyd. I know it. Oh, that'll be
0: fun. Well, we we will encourage that, I think, in future episodes. But uh, just to to end this off, I already have some uh, guest bookings from Color Scientist's psychologists, NASA scientists, uh, people that that have uh, their roots very, very deep into the marketing of things to photographers. uh, And there's a psychological aspect to that as well. People that have spent their lives uh, looking over broken cameras and finding ways to fix them. All sorts of really interesting things that I think that our audience, uh, as it continues to grow, I mean, right now, if you're listening to this, then thank you for stepping in on the ground floor, uh, will be interested in. And uh, you know, it's one of those podcasts where you can go back right to the beginning and find something interesting. So
1: thanks for letting me do this, Frederick. You're welcome. Congratulations. Thank you for doing it. I think you were the perfect choice to do the show, maybe the only choice to do (laughs) the show. And like I, I tell people when I'm talking about the show and bragging about it, you are going to be TWIP's Neil deGrasse Tyson, (laughs) (laughs) astrophysicist for podcasting and photography. I
0: I have to reiterate, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a psychologist. I am a photographer that has interest in these things. Which is even better. And so I'm not going to approach it from something that is an unreachable or intangible kind of concept for photographers. And I'm probably going to get things wrong from time to time because I'm presenting it as a photographer sees it. And I think that's the most important viewpoint to have. Uh, yeah. So without further ado, Frederick, let's end this off and say, uh, I guess the next time on Inside the Lens, we will uh, go down a couple of more fun rabbit holes. All right. See you later. All right. Thanks. I had no idea the twists and turns this conversation was going to have with frederick i hope you enjoyed it if you want to see more of this kind of content check out this weekend photo uh, you'll find a link on there to the inside the lens podcast and you can find more about my work at doncom.ca most of what frederick does is found also at the thisweekinphoto.com website thanks for listening